Hey everyone, welcome back to Davos Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, coming to you from what was a very sunny Davos today. It was a nice contrast to the gloomy economic mood here. But optimism is the prescription up the mountain, so the rich and powerful don't stay gloomy for long. The forum had an interesting tactic for its globalization-promoting message this year. Open the forum with possibly the most xenophobic leader of a large country, Brazil's President Bolsonaro. And then follow it up with the rather aggressive America First promoting Mike Pompeo, the US Secretary of State. If you can't beat him, invite him. That seems to be the logic. In this episode of Davos Confidential, we've got fantastic guests and a breakthrough for you. Our second guest is Tim Berners-Lee, the man who invented the World Wide Web 30 years ago and helped bring the internet into our homes and offices. He's got a new contract for the web he wants you to sign up to. That's right, you, the individual, have a role too, not just governments and tech companies. First up, Hella Thorning-Schmidt, the CEO of Save the Children, a former Danish Prime Minister and a potential future EU President. We taped our conversation in front of the first Davos or EU Confidential live audience at the Schatzau Hotel tonight. It's a huge Art Nouveau building with a sled run down the mountain, so hopefully I'm not wedged into the side of that mountain by the time you're hearing this. Let's turn to Helle Thorning-Schmidt. Come on up, Helle. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> So, um, Hella, thank you so much for joining us. You are. Uh, thank you for having me. You, you're you're now not I have your to first time around the mountain. I... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're going to keep it short. We're not going to drag this out. We know you're here to Don't drink worry. as well. So, uh, now you are putting a, a good face on because it's now the 100th anniversary of Save the Children. In yes. There are more children in a better position than ever before on the planet. So, yeah. congratulations on that. Yes, no, yeah. Yeah. But there's a big set of uh, open challenges from war zones to education to refugees. Do you want to give us a bit of a run through about what you have been trying to explain to people? Yes. Thank you, first of all, for having me. Thank you for for coming here and listening. Um, And I think the, the good news about children in the world is that the world is actually a better place for children than it ever has been. Children are wealthier, healthier, better educated than they ever have been. So from that point of view, it's a great story. But if we look at the Sustainable Development Goals, which we are, of course, also discussing in this World Economic Forum, we can see that one of the reasons why, that one of the things that is holding us back from reaching our goals in 2030 is because what happens to children, and particularly what happens to children in war and conflict. Uh, we have not had more children uh, in war and conflict, affected by war and conflict uh, uh, in the last two decades. We have one in six children who are affected by war and children, and that impacts uh, our results on uh, ending hunger, uh, improving education, uh, and of, of course health services as well. So these are the issues that we are dealing with. So for many, many children and far too many children, their perspective is still pretty grim. And I could go on for a long time, but I'll, I'll stop here. And- What really strikes me from your comments there and some of the other things that we've been uh, seeing released in recent days is the the basic nature of some of the demands of people in these situations or the UNICEF survey that came out uh, just yesterday that said the core things that people want are access to educational opportunities and and better jobs. These are pretty simple things. Yeah, I just survived this week. Uh, I mean, children are dying of hunger in Yemen. Uh, I don't know how many of you are completely on top of what happens in Yemen. My experience is that it's one of those forgotten crises that we, we don't 
get engaged in, but children are dying from hunger there. Uh, millions of people don't know where their next meal is coming from. I mean, I sat with some of those children, some of those babies, uh, and, and this is the truth, a completely man-made crisis that didn't need to happen, uh, and we're allowing this to happen. Uh, so this still makes me extremely angry that this is taking place. Uh, so in everything that we're doing, I just want us to remind ourselves of all these forgotten children uh, in war and, uh, and, and conflict zones all over the world. And the next question is about the traction you're getting for those messages here, because there's a lot of positive energy in Davos. No one will dispute it. There's a lot of can-do people up here. And then sometimes it feels like all of that positivity doesn't translate into action. But I'm sensing a bit of a mood that people are taking it slightly more seriously this year, even as all of the external criticism is now coming in about this place and, and whether it should even exist. Yeah, I mean, you always question, you are in Davos and you hear people talking really positive things about how, what they're going to do. I was coaching uh, World Economic Forum Davos uh, three years ago, just when we had the boss of the Sustainable Development Goals, and everyone was saying, oh, how can we go home in our uh, business and incorporate these goals? I'm not sure they have all done it. So there's always a buzz here. But what I am actually seeing on a positive note is now that we have the, the US which are basically taking a big, long nap from engaging in the global uh, community. They're not here. They have taken a nap from, for a long time. They're not engaging, and they're leaving a complete void. That void can be filled by very dangerous forces, but it can also be filled by uh, corporations here in Davos, uh, partnerships with NGOs like um, our, um, us, uh, politicians who want to be part of, of creating a positive uh, effect in, in society. So I'm hearing a lot of corporations just today saying, so what can we do? And the partnerships they do with us, for example, Save the Children, is very, very positive. So maybe where there is a gap or void, others will step in. That's what I'm hoping mm -hmm. for. And then on the public side, because not everything can just be done through public-private partnerships, but if we now get into the business of government, for example, I was really struck by the Oxfam report this year. You know, part of me thought, like, oh, they do this every single year. It's just the same old thing, rich people getting richer. You know, it's, it's almost, it doesn't feel newsworthy at some level. And then this year, it's really kind of, it, it's caught a light yeah. because now the numbers feel a little bit too gross and yeah. heading in one direction. Yet we aren't really collecting the taxes we need in a lot of places to fund the sort of basic challenges and services and infrastructure that might solve some of the problems you, you know, do. I, I have to agree with you there. Uh, I've heard a lot of people, uh, I don't know if you heard, the whole bus uh, today, I think, has been about this Edelman barometer coming out where they have measured, when they've measured trust. They've done this for 19 years. One of the things that come out very clearly is that people actually, the people that people trust are the people close to them, like their CEOs, for example, which is great. Uh, and that has meant that a lot of CEOs are going, going back saying that that's an obligation for us, that we have to take that responsibility. We have to make sure that we live up to our values, that we're not only about uh, profit, that we also have a human face to whatever company that we are leading. But I, and I think that's great. But I think we should challenge them even more and say, okay, even though the trust has gone local, we also need, the solutions are still global. Mm -hmm. And I will believe all these big 
billionaires and philanthropists and CEOs when we start talking about how do we actually create more equity, more fairness in society. Uh, and that can only be done if we are prepared to have a tax base globally, not like someone who collects the tax, but where every government actually has a solid tax base. It doesn't have to be like in Denmark. I don't think that's necessary for everyone. Uh, even it works very well there. Um, but it, a solid tax base, so you can start paying for education, healthcare, sim simple things that people want, and will make them stakeholders in globalization, will give them agency and give them assets that they get something out of globalization. So I do think that is the next step. And that brings us on to that whole question about what is fueling populist uh, popularity, yeah. let's face it. Uh, the fact that many of the world's largest governments now, they're either run by a populist agenda or by populist parties. And one issue that you deal with and where you've had some really interesting views that I've heard you say in the past is around migration, where this, this idea that people need to feel that their government is in control. Yeah. But also, there are huge humanitarian issues uh, when there, are, there is forced migration and everything that we've seen in recent years. Um, do you want to run us through a little bit your perspective there? Like, how, how can migration be managed better so we don't end up with a world of populist government? Yeah, exactly. I, I do think we have to go back because people are saying, oh, there's so many populists and we don't, that, that, that creates a problem. But we have to go a little bit backwards. I've also been in politics for... 20 years, I was member of European Parliament, I was leader of my party for 10 years, was Prime Minister. So I think we also have to ask ourselves, have we tried to solve the problems that people face when they face globalization? Or has the world become a little bit too insecure for a lot of people? And I do think that the economy pl plays a big role in that, uh, but also community and culture plays a big role. And when you start talking about community and culture, you have to ask, how is migration or immigration impacting community and culture? And if we, or if the elite starts saying, oh, you just, you shouldn't discuss this. We are this. the elite. Let's be and, uh, if you're standing in yeah, this room, you're, you're part of the elite. If the elite says, oh, don't worry about that, it's just cool, and the more, the more cultures we have together, it's just all great. It always turns out that the elite never lives in the apartment blocks where, the, immigra where uh, the immigrants live or where the integration has to uh, get on, uh, be, be, be solved. So it always turns out like that. So I do think we have to find, find a way of finding the, a good balance in our immigration policies, respect that people are not only interested in, in the economy, which they are, of course, jobs and everything, but they're also interested in community, culture, the things they like because they are close to themselves, and that means that governments have to manage uh, immigration one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of that issue, it reminds me that at several different layers, uh, you're quite connected to the Brexit issue, where it's obviously something that's on all of our minds. It's, it fills all of the newspapers. It's uh, the sort of issues that you had to deal with at the European Council when yeah. you were a member there. Yeah. And your husband, not that I'm here to ask your husband's <laughs> opinion, but he's a British MP. So uh, you've kind of got a second row seat in the whole Brexit crisis. Yeah. Is there any way out of this mess? You know, if you, if you were back at that European Council table, like, what would you be channeling for those people? Well, first I'd like to see it. I mean, I'm, I'm a Dane living in the UK. I'm married to a Brit who is also a member of the, of the parliament. For now, they might send you parliament. Home. No, they won't. <laughs> because there's a way of applying, so I don't think they will. But anyway, I first I want to see it from a European perspective. Uh, I think it's been quite 
amazing, and I'm very proud of the European countries that they've actually managed to, uh, to stay together. They managed to have one message. Uh, they managed to have a negotiator, Barnier, who I think has done a very decent job at keeping everyone together. Uh, they've been on message the whole way through. And I'm telling you this as someone who's participated in more than 30 European Council meetings, sitting around that table with heads of states of government, that that, that is no easy thing to do. That is difficult because there are so many interests at stake. So the fact that they have managed to do that and very, very clearly demonstrated that the the disagreement didn't come from the European side, even though we are a very complex side to navigate. The disagreement came from the UK side. It was basically uh, as Prime Minister that couldn't even find an agreement in her own cabinet, uh, let alone in her, in her party, and not in the parliament either. So I think there's so many things that have happened uh, during the, the, these, these almost three years um, that has been mistake upon mistake upon mistake. Uh, just the fact that uh, the Prime Minister have not talked to parliamentarians, not found a national compromise for this. That must seem so strange to a Dane. Like, it just, I find it a bit astounding yeah. that uh, she me, walked into that negotiation yeah. without really ever speaking to those I other I thought that was completely, I mean, I don't know if some of you, may, many of you might not know this, but we lost the referendum in 92. Uh, which is many years ago, uh, but we actually got a national agreement for what we should go back to the EU with. Um, and that was very difficult, but it meant that the EU, first of all, said yes. It also meant that when we had the referendum after that, the people said yes, and that was how we solved uh, that issue. I don't understand why uh, Prime Minister May have not done exactly the same, find a national agreement and try to negotiate that with the EU. She would have been much stronger, and I think she would have been a legacy Prime Minister if she had managed to do that. Are we barreling towards either a referendum or a general election now? Um, I think there is a very, very real risk uh, of a crash-out, uh, a no-deal crash-out. And I call it that because I think it is fair uh, when, you when you're breaking up uh, a long marriage of 40 years, that you, if you just leave uh, and haven't solved anything about who takes what and who's... That is a crash-out, and they will cause a lot of damage to the people who always get damaged when there's no regulation on an international level, the most deprived, marginalised people, the people who don't have a lot, uh, they will be most damaged by that. So I sincerely hope that is not uh, how we're ending. Then there are different other scenarios. Um, there is uh, May going back to Brussels and getting something on the backstop. Don't believe that so much. Uh, then there is an, another uh, people's vote or another referendum, uh, uh, whatever they call it, it's the same thing. Uh, and then, of course, there is uh, an, a deal where you have the single market, you have the customs union, uh, you don't have to have a hard border with the Northern Ireland, and that's what some people call uh, Norway Plus. So there are different options, but what they have to work out now, what can actually get a majority in Parliament, and then they have to find out, is it a Parliament deciding, or, an, or do you have a referendum at the end of it? Mm -hmm. Now, you had some big news recently where you announced you'll step down as CEO of Save the Children. Yeah, why did I do that? Yeah. Because well, you're going to do cool new things in green energy <laughs> and other places like that. But I'm also going to throw it out there that there's a lot of people who think that you would make a great EU leader as one of the presidents and that it's time for a woman to lead one of the EU's main institutions. So not to flatter you, but would you be available if someone turns around? Well, I, says, definitely, I definitely think uh, it is time for a woman. Uh, there are many qualified women in uh, the European Union who could do it. There's not that many who's been prime ministers, but I think it is uh, it's time for a woman. 
The second thing is, I also think that it's been, uh, we've had a lot of conservative um, conservative men uh, doing that job, uh, but I'm actually not putting myself up for that job. Uh, well, that's the sure way to lose it, so you can't do that. Smart, <laughs> smart person up on the stage here. Don't campaign for it. <laughs> no, and I, I, there's been a Spitzenkandidat uh, process. Uh, everyone will have observed I'm not a Spitzenkandidat. I don't agree with that process at all, um, and I have never, never agreed with that process. That leaves two other presidencies. Yeah? Yeah, the yeah. council. Well, maybe... You know, okay. Juncker, Juncker was Spitzenkandidat. He was for the commission. But European yeah. Council but they, they had never had a, they had never had, yeah that's true yeah. whatever um, but anyway I, I have been in politics for many years I've seen uh, a lot I've done a lot uh, and I, I'm looking forward to have a more free role I can do and say exactly what I want I'm not finished with uh, what is my task uh, which is to find a way to regulate globalization uh, to keep democracy all over the world to fight for women's rights and of course for children's rights which I think is something that can build bridges between us. I see that when children are really suffering, when we start having a conversation about that, that can actually move mountains. It can move parties to start negotiating in Stockholm. It can move, move things. So children's rights is something that concerns us all because it's close to our hearts. Uh, and I will still uh, fight for, for children because they don't have a voice if we don't give them one. Hello, Tony Schmidt. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us. Joining me now on Davos Confidential is Tim Berners-Lee, who you'll all know as the man who invented the World Wide Web. And we're at a real turning point in not only political history at the moment, but the Internet's history. 30 years old, half of the world is online, but we are seeing not only big questions about that digital revolution, but big questions about the future of democracy. Uh, Tim, do you want to tell us um, where you're at in the debate and, and what you're bringing to, to Davos to move it forward? Okay, start with uh, the internet is 50 years old, the web is 30 years old, because there's 20 years uh, when there was an internet, but, there were, but you couldn't click on things, uh, there weren't websites. So, uh, so lots, of, lo lots of analysis, and, and we're getting to this turning point where half the world is online. The Web Foundation has always been trying to fight to get more people online quicker or cheaper, uh, and fighting the cost of, uh, of data plans and things like that. The, and the uh, meanwhile, the quality of the web, whether it actually serves humanity for the people who are online, have been also have been equally uh, important parts of the mission. Now they come sort of both into focus because what was a minority of people uh, who were online uh, couldn't, and now you can't regard it as a luxury. Uh, now it's a minority of people who are, off, who are not connected in the minority of people. As they get smaller, obviously, they will become more and more disenfranchised uh, because the assumption will be everywhere that you can be online. And uh, so that's a uh, good time to take stock. And meanwhile, we look around, and not only are people, some of the political systems around us seem to be in free fall, but people are looking at the web and saying, actually, is technology responsible to a certain extent? And whereas we used to just feel if we fought to keep it open, free, net neutrality, you know, freedom, I should be able to talk to anybody. Now I think the Web Foundation has done a, a bit of a stop, turn left, because uh, actually we realize keeping it free and open is part of it. It's important. You need to keep doing that. But then when you, when you do, people will build on top of it structures 
which of all sorts. And those structures, some of them will be deliberately misleading. Some of them will be set up by you know, foreign powers in order to create uh, chaos. Some of them will be set up by commercial companies uh, just in order to make money. But in making money, they'll find the easiest way to do it is, in fact, to sow disinformation because that's what people engage with better. And some of them may be set up by people with completely good intentions. But when you know, we set these things up, we think about how two people interact. But then when a million people or a billion people interact, suddenly the system, you get unexpected emergent properties of the system. So it may be nobody's fault, but we just haven't figured out what the emergent properties are. So is that, and is that the kind of Facebook problem? Not to pin it on one company, but you have uh, a culture in uh, internet startup environments where people move quick. They want to innovate. Innovation can be a good thing. But sometimes they create something that gets a bit out of control in terms of its popularity or its use. And then you're, you're stuck with what you've suggested, which is people building something with good intentions, but you know, almost a monster is created. Well, nobody's uh, done, I think, enough research to know whether there are, uh, uh, to what extent there are emergent properties uh, uh, of things like Facebook and Twitter. To uh, because even though I worry that we might wake up tomorrow morning and there's been some sort of cultural revolution like in China except overnight uh, happening on Twitter uh, because that's the way it turns out that it, that, you know, it turned out that Twitter allowed that for that sort of thing to happen uh, we haven't really done enough research in it we really need to spend very much more time on it I know uh, from talking to the folks at Facebook are very concerned about this sort of thing They've, you can look at Mark's blogs he's very concerned that Facebook should serve humanity even though you know, from his point of view serving, it serves humanity by getting everybody to use Facebook Facebook, <laughs> but uh, you know, we'd like everybody to use the web and, uh, and for them to have a constructive conversation to work towards truth, to work towards good democracy and, you know, and truth-mediated uh, uh, democratic decisions. So and I think to a certain extent, um, uh, the folks at Facebook and Twitter both to, uh, uh, would like the systems to be used uh, to work well and to lead to good things. We don't. Uh, I think some things uh, you can't. Uh, you, you let to attack one particular company, which is easy to do. But for example, I, uh, I think when when there is a, a more or less military attack by a foreign power, um, which is trying to sow chaos, then you need to look. It's a it's really a national security or an international sort of global security issue. Uh, and uh, you can't just point... You know, I think we need a lot of collaboration between governments and industry to be able to solve that. Well, that brings us to multi-stakeholder um, models of governance, and I thought I'd ask you about that uh, long-standing fear that there might be a breakup of the, the Internet or, or the web as we know it into national or regional webs. Uh, is that something that you still worry about, or has that been superseded by those other concerns about how people use the network? Well, when you step back and look at, yes, multi-stakeholder. When we look at, so the Web Foundation, we've produced this thing called a contract for the web. And it's called a contract because of multi-stakeholder. And we've pulled out, in fact, three stakeholders, not the one you might, uh, uh, the, the three you might <laughs> typically have in Davos. We pick up governments because there's some things that governments have to do and only governments can do. And there's some things governments are doing wrong and only governments are doing wrong. And similarly, when you look at large companies, lots of things that they need to do, uh, which, which they should do, uh, like net neutrality and so on, to a certain extent, depends on both. Uh, but then for, for, for us, 
The third party of the deal that also benefits from and, and has to commit to the contract is the individual person, the citizen, the consumer, um, the individual who uh, has a responsibility, uh, we think, to behave responsibly, uh, for example, to try to think about whether what they're reading is actually true before they retweet it, uh, to think about the groups that they're building up and try to include people who are a bit more varied, to join groups that aren't predominantly their own culture but a slightly different one and learn how they understand. So I think so that there's lots of things that all three parties need to do and the individual has a lot to do uh, as participating in these networks and also the individual has to every now and again hold government and industry accountable for the things that government and industry could do because otherwise nobody else will. Tim Berners-Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Davos Confidential. We've got two more coming your way this week. If you haven't already subscribed like Tim Berners-Lee did Tuesday morning, you can do so wherever you found this podcast. And if you go to politico.eu forward slash registration and sign up for free there, we'll email you the podcast details each week and invite you to any podcast-related event, like the live taping with Hello Tony Schmidt. Podcasting is a team effort. Andrew Gray and Eddie Wax, we couldn't do it without you.